0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program. I am excited that you were here. We are talking about the spirit of 1776 with our, group, with our great friend Alexander Salter. He is uh, one of my favorite people to talk to. You can tell we have him on every three or four months because I really enjoy having conversations with him. He is a diverse and thoughtful writer who covers so many different topics talk a little bit about that at the end but really we dive into what is libertarianism how is it different from conservatism what is going on in the modern conservative movement and how it is disparate and different from the founding of the american revolution and we talk about the constitution and why we should even fool with that at all since it's clearly failed has it alexander salter answers right after these words Alex Salter, thanks for joining me here on the program.
1: Great to be back, Chris. Thank you.
0: I am in the middle of your book, The Spirit of 76, Libertarianism and American Renewal. You're another guest. I had just had Max Boot on, who's written a book called Underthrow about Jeffersonian democracy and the future of the Constitution. And there seems to be several people who have had the same thought around the same time as me, which is, when everything's going crazy, let's get back to first principles. Talk about why you decided to write The Spirit of 76. I know it's a collection of maybe some other work, but I think it's just incredibly concise. It's a great... If you're looking to give a book to somebody who wants to understand libertarianism or you're trying to understand it, I think it's a fantastic book. But why did you put this together and why focus on first principles right now?
1: You're absolutely right. It is about first principles. The reason that I wrote the book is because both the left and the right are self-consciously turning their backs on what makes the United States unique among the nation, among the nations. This idea that we are a nation conceived and founded upon liberty, the idea that human dignity is such that it is wrong to coerce people, to initiate violence against them, to reduce them to mere means to your end. Whether we're talking about public violence in the form of government or private violence in the form of crime, both of those violate our natural rights. And that needs to be our starting point when we talk about politics. On the left, of course, you have all these increasing schemes for centralizing government power and running roughshod over people. But frighteningly, the right seems to be going this way, too. You have this new movement for so-called national conservatism, which is basically, as far as I can tell, just another version of progressivism except for nominally right-wing cultural causes. It's like somebody brought back the absolute worst parts of the Teddy Roosevelt administration. So I don't see much of what makes America in either of these movements. And so I wanted to get back to liberty. I wanted to get back to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and show how these are not just things that we can discard without consequence. They are essential to America. They make us who we are, and we can't forget it.
0: So in the book you write, libertarianism is a rational reconstruction of America's founding principles. Can you clarify what you mean? Expound on that for us, please.
1: Sure. So the way that I think about libertarianism is it's a liberty-first approach to politics. This idea that there are many virtues or many goods that we might want to pursue publicly, but the first one has to be liberty the first one has to be freedom from coercion. Libertarianism as a philosophy really came into its own, starting with the years following the Second World War, when the Cold War was just beginning to heat up. That's when many thinkers began reflecting on earlier American traditions of philosophy and governance to reconstruct the philosophy of liberty, to basically take those timeless principles and bring them to new problems and new situations. And we had some revitalizations of this in the past. We had a I would regard as an incomplete and unsatisfying start during the Reagan years in the 1980s. I think the problem there is we just didn't go far enough. We should have gone even further in returning to our pro-liberty roots and governance. And so I wanted to make sure that people understood, really understood, that this is not something foreign to the American experience. This is not something that we're importing. It's not some abstract, rational philosophy with no living connection to our own governance traditions. It's as American as apple pie.
0: Yeah, you start the book, you have, the the book is split into three different sections. There's the history of American liberty, the philosophy of liberty, and American liberty in the 21st century. And you really, I think in the first part of the book, do a great job of explaining what libertarianism is, and I love that you wrap it in the founding, because I completely agree with you. When it comes to the Declaration of Independence, for instance, being a great example of a libertarian document can you talk a little bit about that why is the declaration considered a libertarian document in your mind
1: it's a libertarian document because for the first time you had a group of people come together and say these are the principles on which just government rests This is the reason why we think that we have a right to separate from the mother country. It has systematically violated our natural rights that are not given to us from government, rights that are ours by right of our humanity, given from God or given by nature, if you prefer. The point is they aren't handed down on high by aristocrats or kings or our supposed betters. Every human being because he or she is a human being, has a right not to be coerced, has a right not to be used as an instrument in somebody else's plans. And if government starts to systematically infringe on those rights, it is proper and appropriate for us to restructure them. And that was the basic intention of the Declaration of Independence. For the first time, people stood up and said, this is fundamentally wrong. It's wrong because we are human beings and we cannot be treated this way and we're going to do something about it.
0: All right, let me put on my John Stossel hat and give you some counter-arguments. Do it. Look, these guys were maybe the greatest hypocrites in the history of the world. Thomas Jefferson owned people and was writing that every person is endowed with liberty and dignity. Why should we revere the founding of this country and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Federalist Papers when these people were so unable to actually carry out liberty in their own time?
1: That's a perfectly valid question. Slavery is absolutely the nation's original sin. So in many ways, the founders themselves didn't live up to our founding principles, but that doesn't make the principles untrue. You can say it was all just motivated reasoning. You can say it was all just testimony in favor of their special interests or whatever. But if you really dig into the principles, this idea that a human being cannot be coerced politically because we have a right to be free from that sort of arbitrary treatment really does speak to something fundamental about what it means to be human. We are creatures endowed with reason and will. We have to pursue the good. We have to separate virtue from vice and live according to the ways that we know how to live best. We cannot do that if the state is taking a heavy-handed approach and micromanaging us. It's stopping us from flourishing as human beings In so far as the founders were inconsistent, and let's be clear, many of them were, we can and should condemn them. But that means that we should actually call out the specific practices that were abuses. I don't think that we should indict the principles. We should live up to the principles. And if we haven't yet, then it's time to start trying.
0: All right. Look, this whole experiment has gone wrong. You outlined it in your book when you talk about the progressive vision and how conservatives and progressives and Democrats, and it's just been 120 years of downhill from here, and when I talk to libertarians, a lot of them have somewhat of a point. Why should we revere the Constitution when this experiment has gone so horribly wrong when it comes to liberty?
1: That's another perfectly valid question. So actually, in the book, I'm probably as much of a constant Constitution skeptic as you can have somebody be while still being on board with the political foundations of our current society. You're starting order. to
0: grow your Lysander Spooner beard. I can see it coming in. It's, it's looking good.
1: So really, it was a plan. It was a rational plan, according to reason and will. No, we won't go there. So the question is a valid one. And I really think it's important to dig into the political fundamentals here. Yes, we've gone off track. Yes, it is the case that much of what the federal government has done since the New Deal era, if not longer, I would actually go back even further to at least the Wilson administration, is unlawful in the sense that it's unconstitutional. So what do we do about it? Tell me your proposed remedy. Another revolution? I don't think so. I don't think many people realize that although the American Revolution was this wonderful statement of moral principles, it was also a revolution. And revolutions can go really bad really fast. Just look at France in the 18th century or Russia in the early 20th century. We're reared on the romance of revolution as Americans, but I think that makes us a little bit too cavalier about, okay, since we created our own government once, we can throw the whole thing overboard and start from scratch. There's a lot of peril in that way. There's a lot of ruin in a nation, as a famous thinker once said. So I would argue that the best chance that we have of securing order and liberty today is getting serious about the Constitution, reigning in the administrative state, adopting a strict construction of the Constitution, including a strict interpretation of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, get really serious about federalism, do all these things that classically liberal conservatives and libertarians have been talking about for decades—
0: all right, so we're going to go through a lot of those terms. Now it's uh, def- definition time. You know, you talk a little bit in the beginning of the book. I was um at a thing where I was uh, I was probably the only libertarian in the room, right? It was probably a lot of people who vote Democrat and one person so where, was like, where was this if I at So I'm going to be on a TV show actually. Oh wow. Uh, for BET and I was talking with a group of people and one of the people happened to be Ray J, <laughs> if you know th- that particular person. And he's become a little infamous for going to Mar-a-Lago and being friends with Kanye, and he's somewhat conservative. And he asked if I was a Republican, and I said, nah, I'm a libertarian. And another person goes, there's no difference between a conservative and a libertarian. And I was like, eh, there's a difference on a lot of social issues and other things. So I know the difference between a conservative, but I think if you were like... A progressive person just looking from the outside in, going, hey, This dude loves constitutions and Jesus, and he's just a Republican, but hasn't come to terms with it yet, right? What is the difference between a conservative in the traditional sense, not in the whatever the hell the term has come to mean now sense, versus a libertarian and their scope of their field of view and responsibility?
1: traditionally a conservative is somebody who is very hesitant to tinker with the foundations of the social and especially the political order i myself have a lot of small c conservative in me in the sense that i'm a fan of thinkers like edmund burke the great uh, irish english statesman who as many people view as the founding father of modern conservatism and also more contemporary thinkers like f.a hayek the nobel laureate who wrote about the pretense of knowledge But today, what I would say characterizes conservatism is a willingness to use the state power, government power, to enforce particular conceptions of virtue, this idea that we know what the good life is, we know what it entails, we know that certain things are objectively bad for you, and so we're going to take these options off the table, and if you try and do them, we will send men with guns to your house and force you to stop. Now, in many ways, in the book, I position myself as a libertarian conservative because in many ways, I actually agree that those values that conservatives say they want to uphold are the right ones. I think that they're correct. I think that we should all live that way. But I'm not willing to arrogate to the government the power to enforce that at gunpoint because I think that natural rights are real and that even for their own good, there are certain things that you just can't do to people. And that's what I would say separates a libertarian. Perhaps the libertarian doesn't actually believe those traditional conservative values are in fact values. Perhaps the libertarian does, but thinks that it's inappropriate to coerce people anyway. That's where I'm at. That's what it means to put liberty first.
0: Yeah, I think we're both there. And I think as a, I know you're a faithful Christian man, I am too. And in a lot of conservative and even libertarian circles, social conservatism has, we're, we're, I think we're almost past the post of the the Bush era in terms of what we'd like to see the government do, this and that. A lot of folks, you're in the Orthodox vein. I see a lot of people in the Orthodox vein. I'm in the Reform vein. A lot of people are into theonomy in the Reformed camp. And it's become a clever thing to, I'm post-libertarian, I'm anti-libertarian, they're all fools. When you see some of that criticism and that libertarianism can't work with Christianity and that it's a fool's errand, what do you think?
1: I would ask them what they mean by work. I think a lot of people don't actually admit to themselves how much they think that all of society should conform coercively, if necessary, to their social vision. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a Christian. I think that everybody should be a Christian because Christianity is true. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is still alive today. That's that. But we are not permitted to put weapons against people's heads, swords against their necks and say, live this way or bad things will happen to you. That option is explicitly taken off the table. We don't have that right. To the extent that we want to guide people to the good life, we have to lead by reason, by example, by persuasion. And we have to be okay with being a minority in a world that largely despises us in our value systems. This is not unfamiliar territory for the church. In many ways, the church is at its strongest when it's reviled by the larger popular culture. So I'm not afraid of being a religious and or moral minority. Again, we have this in our experience. We lived with it then. We can live with it now. I think that we're doing far greater damage to the witness of Christianity If we start trying to not only convert people by the sword, but also try and enforce a Christian morality on people with the sword, that's the greater threat today, and I do not think that is ultimately going to bring people closer to Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, I generally, I agree with everything you said, and I generally think that sort of the bad reputation of the evangelical church and some of the excesses of it were brought out by the Bush years where we tried to force religion into politics and— You know, that it's odd watching Mike Pence because forever Mike Pence was Mr. Republican. This, if you're a Republican, this is the guy that you just think he just is dead on right about everything, right? Wrote the Patriot Act, very pro life.
1: I didn't Um, know Mike Pence wrote the Patriot Act.
0: He did. He used to brag about it on his website. Yeah, I'm here in Indiana. I, I ran a campaign against Pence. He had a, he was like number three in the House and really helped shepherd that through. Here's a guy who, now you look at him and you go, this isn't it. Why is this guy even running for president? <laughs> His vein of conservatism really has fallen out of favor for a lot of the NatCons or the whatever the heck the Trumps are, uh, the MAGA people and QAnon and the top-down conspiracy folks, or there's the Sorabomari Catholic, There's national conservatism, but I don't know what they are, right? The deal of fusionism has fallen apart. And you talk a little bit about that. I'd love for you to define fusionism. What was it and what has happened to it?
1: Absolutely. Fusionism is a philosophy associated with many of the founders of National Review Magazine in the mid-1950s. And it was basically the assertion that both liberty and virtue are inherent in the American political tradition. And that furthermore, institutionally and philosophically, the American tradition has approached these virtues, right, the right to be free and the right to be good in such a way that it's government's job to make us free. And then we allow the other sectors of civil society, churches, universities, fraternities, uh, lodges, other civil organizations, to instill communal virtue in us. It's a comparative advantage story, this idea that we're allocating to each social sphere the task that they're best at. We're not saying in the abstract that liberty is more important than virtue. In fact, the whole point of being a human person is to learn to be good and then to be good. Virtue is the end of human existence. But government can't make men good. It can, in some circumstances, draw some warning posts or keep away gate fences around some really bad things, but it can't actively lead us to a good life. We have to do that in voluntary community, in families, and other important institutions that are really, in the grand scheme of things, far more important than the state. Now, a lot of people will sometimes denigrate fusionism as a mere coalitional strategy. They'll say things like, oh, it was just an alliance of foreign policy hawks and libertarians and tradcons, and they made an electoral majority for a certain period of time. But now that the Cold War is over, that sort of broke up and we don't need it anymore. To be clear, there was a coalitional aspect to it. But I think that at its root, it was a coherent philosophy about how human beings can flourish, the combination of political liberty and civic virtue is how we can be our full authentic human selves. Stephanie Slade at Reason Magazine has done a lot of good writing on this. And so I would actually direct a lot of your readers to her works as well.
0: Yeah, fusionism has broken apart in favor of a more proactive, I would say progressive government. Is it fair to say that a it, lot is of the, yeah, it is progressivism? Yeah, it's just a, straight up progressivism. Yeah. Expo- go into that into detail, please.
1: This idea that we need a top-down administrative state, largely unshackled from constitutional norms, largely run by a discretionary executive rather than answerable to the people's representatives in Congress assembled. If you look at the progressive movement, it wasn't exclusively a movement of the left when it first came about in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There are plenty of people that we would culturally associate with the right who were progressives. The whole point was: constitutional government is outdated. It's too slow. There's too many checks and balances. We got to get all this stuff down, uh, out, and empower a vigorous executive to micro, micromanage society from on high. Now, left progressives wanted to do it for left-wing cultural reasons, and right progressives wanted to do it for right-wing cultural reasons. But they all basically agreed that the structure of American government was obsolete. And we needed to replace it in a way that was much more amenable to strong, rapid, vigorous state action helmed by enlightened bureaucrats underneath a philosopher king style of president. And I think that's a fundamentally un-American way to govern a nation. You
0: point out the inherent contradiction in this, rightly, in that progressivism thinks that people can be perfected, yet doesn't trust them to do it.
1: This idea that, oh, the people are benighted. We need to make them good. Then where are you going to get these political paladins from who are going to make them good? <laughs> these but honest, way, upright,
0: right? standing, outstanding politicians will lead us. Ju- Holly and no It's Pelosi. the experts, it's oh, the experts, the experts. Right?
1: Okay, yes. In fact, the progressives really want to minimize the political as- political aspect, right? They want to empower the bureaucratic administrative state with their credentialed experts as much as possible. But who ultimately authorizes that? Again, now this is where the politicians come into it. So at the end of the day, you're ultimately going to assume that the people are sufficiently virtuous to produce a natural aristocracy that can be trusted with power. But if they can be trusted with power, we wouldn't need to go through any of these constitutional niceties in the first place. So it's pretty much the same argument that James Madison made in the Federalist Papers. Not everything the Federalist said was wrong.
0: Yeah, so moving forward, it's about trusting people through democracy to elect and and put checks and balances and frustrate the future. Right? Give us give us the opposite of progressivism. How would you start to lay this out? You talk a little bit about the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, and talk about the American Liberty in the twenty first century chapter, and a couple ideas that you would love to see enact that offer a different vision from the
1: duopoly. Absolutely. The first thing that needs to happen is strict federalism. We need to give new life to the ninth and especially the 10th amendments to the United States Constitution. There is not nearly enough difference in policy across state lines. There is some, right? You can very much talk about a California governance model as compared to a Florida or Texas governance model. And I think that it is telling that so many people are leaving California and coming to Florida and Texas. But even that's comparatively small, right? We need to actually decentralize rulemaking as much as possible. There is no good reason for there to be a national healthcare policy. The needs of New York City and the needs of Salt Lake City are not going to be the same. There should be massive differences at the local and state levels in terms of how we approach healthcare, how we approach taxation, how we approach business regulation. These things can be devolved to the most local level possible. Really, the federal government should only be involved in producing the goods that are most essentially in the collective interests of the nation. And anything more than that, we have to view with extreme suspicion. In addition to all that, we really have to cap the rate of government spending. In fact, we should cut it outright. Government's just too big. It's time to knock it down a peg. We've got to put strict rules on the Central Bank of the United States. The Federal Reserve has gotten out of control. The whole reason that we had to put up with that nasty bout of high inflation two to one year ago was because the Federal Reserve basically unleashed the printing presses and tried to paper over the economic difficulties that came with COVID. So we need to control that process. Pick any political issue. And there's almost always going to be something that you can do to either A, get the decisions closer to the people and their elected representatives, or B, restore strict constitutionality. We got to get control of this process and we have to respect the original design intentions because if we don't, we can't be surprised and shocked that this thing is going off the rails. It's like we're trying to use the machine to do something completely differently than it was intended to do. And then we're, and then we act surprised when it doesn't work. Why would it work? Why would you expect a swimmer to swim if you tie a 50 pound weight to him? It's just going to drag him down. <laughs> I was The right problem's on. not with the swimmer. It's with the weight.
0: I know I was ranting to my wife that we must end direct election of senators and go back to states doing it. She's like, what are you talking about? I go, look, we neutered political parties, which were an essential institution in weeding out the nuts. And now the nuts, thanks to, uh, it's part of what led to oligarchy and part of what led to primaries electing nutty people, right? She's like, all right, I guess you have a point, but that just seems like such a wild idea that I don't think you could ever sell. I was like, I guess 100 years ago when they started selling this stuff, Alex. You go and read Debs' – I've said this for more than 15 years at this point in speeches. If you go back and read Eugene Debs' 1908 and 1912 platforms, Barack Obama was the ultimate fulfillment of so many of those ideas. And libertarians, I tend to think about the news cycle, or really everybody thinks about the news cycle, they think about current events. And they're not putting forward a long-term vision for a hundred years from now. Um, So I think your book gets at a point at that, but I think that is a a key missing piece that libertarians are missing. All right, we're in this constitutional system. We can argue about anarchy all day, but the fact is the system is really hard to change. We're recording this the day after Donald Trump gets his fourth indictment, right? And that's because he fundamentally wanted to transform the Constitution in a single day. If you don't agree with me, you're just wrong and look up reality and check it. Uh, Opinions expressed by me may not be Alex's, but he is now facing consequences within the constitutional system for rapid change, which is not how it was designed. It was meant to be slow. And you have to have a long-term vision for where it would like to go. How do we achieve that vision? First, do you agree with me? And how do we achieve that vision when people on the right generally are like hurting cats?
1: First, you don't need to put a disclaimer on Trump contempt. I'm 100% with you. (laughs) It's not a secret. Anybody who's familiar with anything I've ever written would probably know that. Good. We really need to... I think that many intellectuals, public intellectuals, people who are civically engaged have been a little bit too hesitant to try and bring their ideas and turn them into practice. This idea that it's okay to talk and philosophize about politics, but when it comes actually time to roll up your sleeves and try and make our institutions better, that's partisan. That's icky. We might have to make compromises and we don't like doing that. I'd much rather just write another op-ed about it. Don't get me wrong. I love writing op-eds. I do it all the time, but at the same time, and here's the only thing I'll agree with uh, Teddy Roosevelt about, you got to be in the arena. You have to be willing to take a stand on public issues and actually stand up for things that you believe in and make them happen. And until more people are actually willing to do that, it's just going to be talk. It's just going to be talk. Do we care enough about our ideas to see them incarnated in society's institutions? I think a lot of us, and I actually sometimes feel this, we're a little bit scared to try and do that because if it doesn't work, that might discredit our philosophy and that could throw into question, have I been wrong all, the year, all these years about what I believe? And that's stressful and scary. we got to get over it. we got to be in the arena.
0: So I'm looking at your Amazon authors page and we've got a book on distributism which is something that uh, you've been talking a lot about on other podcasts. Mm-hmm. We've got Money and the Rule of Law, which we've had you on to talk about. We've got The Medieval Constitution of Liberty, Political Foundations of Liberalism in the West, which I, I also picked that one up. It's a very cheap price on Kindle right now. And The Spirit very, of 76. A very low
1: price of $0. If <laughs> you that have an iPad, go get it.
0: And the book we're talking about today is $6. Come on, you can afford $6. I know you can. You've written a- about... Not only do you write, but you're also a professor, and you cover a lot of different talks. We've had you on to talk a lot about inflation and economics, but you're also writing history. You're writing political theory. You're writing about economic theory, and you're writing across a lot of disciplines. How do you do that? How do you achieve that?
1: What does your day or week look like that you're able to have this much output? first of all i'm flattered that you that you think so highly of my writing and I'm I, I do i think readers enjoy it too
0: yeah the book is as you can tell his answers we're at a 30 minute podcast that most people would be in an hour or 50 minutes but you're very concise the book is very concisely written the spirit of 76 very well written very everyone's
1: got a time everyone's got time for 100 pages it's 100 pages, pages six dollars yes. 100 pages come on people Well, to answer your question, I think that the key really is I got, I cut my teeth as an economist. That's how I approach the social sciences. That's how I approach the humanities, including philosophy, political philosophy, even the little bit of theology that I sometimes get into. And to be perfectly frank, I do think that the economic way of thinking is a necessary starting point for analyzing all aspects of society as it is. I do think that studying economics can help you find the hidden logic and the hidden order in both simple, mundane, everyday things and really exotic civilization-shaking things. And being able to find that order, to be able to explore and explain the causal links between important human events, that's the strong grounding that you need to get into the more speculative and humanistic disciplines And so for me, at least, I would really say you can't participate in these conversations meaningfully insofar as they touch on social organization and social reform, unless you have basic economics under your belt. You don't have to have a PhD in economics, obviously. You don't even need to have a degree. But you should be familiar with the rudiments of the economic way of thinking. You should understand why demand curves slope down. You should understand scarcity and choice and opportunity cost. And you should unflinchingly apply these concepts to any and all questions of social institutions and social organization. And I think that's going to be a productive place to start. Economics can't, of course, tell you what's good and what's bad. You need philosophy and especially theology to do that. But economics can tell you if you want X good thing, should I or should not do Y. And that's where a lot of people get slipped up. They think uh, I care about the poor, so I I should raise the minimum wage. No, it doesn't necessarily follow because for every worker that you're making better off in money terms, you're also pricing some other workers out of the labor market. And So what worker A gains, worker B loses. Not clear that there's any benefit there. So you need to be able to evaluate trade-offs. You need to be able to look at society and analyze it dispassionately. And then from there, you can do the fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I think just basic economics by Thomas Sowell is... Great place to start. Yeah, just the first paragraph talking about how scarcity is the foundation of human action. And you're like, oh, it just wakes you up to so many different things. The
1: light bulb turns on and you see the world in a way that you didn't see before. Economics is a set of eyeglasses. It it, It illumines and makes things sharper and clearer that you otherwise would not see except in just blurry vision.
0: What about your personal habits? Do you just not have a TV, and do you read
1: nine hours a day, or what? I have a TV, and I watch probably too much of it. In fact, I'm binging West Wing reruns right okay. now. All right, I'm, I'm on
0: Deadwood, so it's amazing I didn't curse okay. this
1: podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> I have preset writing times. I do my academic writings in the mornings, and I try and do academic writings two or three two or three days a week. I'm much more flexible with my public and popular writing. I can write an op ed much more flexibly in terms of my environment, in terms of my other schedule, academic writing, I really got to make sure that I'm in my right place with my right, right materials. But yeah, I spend a lot of time working. I spend a lot of time reading when I'm not in the classroom, I'm writing. And when I'm not writing, I'm reading. Brian Kaplan recently had a Substack post where he said, whatever you like, if you want to be good at it, think about how much you want to do, how much you think you need to do to get good at it, and then do 10 times as much. It's just that do 10 times as much practice, practice, writing, especially public writing, academic writing. It doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a natural born writer. It takes lots and lots of work and you hone the craft by practicing the craft.
0: All right, Alex, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you? Uh, Obviously, we'll put the link to the book in the show notes, but tell us where we can find out more from Alex Salter.
1: Great. Yeah, I'm happy to plug myself. So you can find pretty much everything I've ever written, popular, academic, all my media appearances, links to all my books at my personal website, www.awsalter.com. I am on Facebook, but the account is private. If I don't know you personally, I might not add you. It's nothing personal. Uh, And I'm not on Twitter, Twitter was a mistake for me. I wasn't able to use it well. And so I, th- I thought that the least bad thing after after a rough couple of years was just to get rid of it completely.
0: There, there's got to be, I, I just posted this the other day, there's got to be a term. I'm reading this book right now that I love and she's just done a fantastic job with it. And then I went and looked at her Twitter and I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done this. This, this. I thought this woman was so smart. <laughs> There's got to be a thing where you really enjoy someone's work and then you have this discipline, like a a German word like schadenfreude, but but analogous. But yeah, I get you. If you enjoy somebody's slow work, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to enjoy their fast work where they're just firing out hot takes on twitter so just remember nothing in,
1: in the history of man nothing important was ever said in 280 characters that's true
0: yes uh although elon musk would disagree with you everything he says he thinks is important of course, right. there is
1: there is one exception
0: yes all right alex salter thanks so much for your time we appreciate it thank you god bless and thank you so much for joining us here on the chris spangle show this podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.